You guys all doing well? Yes. Good. I am doing well too. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, so I've been like trying to figure out whether I want to actually talk about this publicly or not, but you know how sometimes there's just something happens in your week and it you just can't like get it out of your head and it just keeps bugging you and so this week something happened. I'm not kidding. This is this really happened this week. Um, somebody peed in my office floor. Yeah, no kidding. I'm not kidding. And and I didn't know if I was. I just I thought I just got to get off my chest so I could preach. You know, somebody peed in my office floor. And I don't want to give you a lot of details, but basic story is this. I had a meeting on Thursday with Robbie Sandwald, and all I'm going to tell you is that when he walked in the office, the carpet was clean. When he walked out of the carpet, the, car- the office, the carpet was peed on. Now, I might have forgot to mention he brought his four-month-old son with him. And so we're meeting, and we get to the end of our meeting, and he goes, you know, I'm going to take off, but let me just change him. Before we go, right? Any of you who have male children understand how this works. So he puts him down on the floor, and the diaper comes off, and I'm on the other side of my desk. I can't see what's going on, but I hear this, oh, Will. <laughs> and then I go, what's up? He goes, he may have just peed on your carpet. I go, may have? <laughs> and, uh, and I just started cracking up, right? And I was obviously tongue-in-cheek saying it was upsetting to me because He's four months old. How are you going to get mad at him for that, right? Now, if Robbie had done it, <laughs> that would have been a whole other deal, right? Because there's a difference between what you expect from an adult and what you expect from an infant. Exactly, right? So I tell you this story because if we're going to really get in and grapple with the book of Ephesians, we have to understand something about what God is trying to do by teaching us this book. What he's trying to do is he is trying to move us out of infancy and into adulthood. He, he's basically saying to us, listen, there, there are certain things that are appropriate for infants that are just simply no longer appropriate for those who are mature. And with, as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, you will note, and I've talked about this many times in introduction, that, that if you just break the book in half, you have the first three chapters that are all about God's grace and God's goodness and how he loves us and his mercy and his kindness and how we don't deserve anything good from God, but he gives us so much good anyway. He adopts us and makes us his children and he transforms us. We get all of that in the first three chapters. And then we get to chapter four and he just turns the corner and begins saying, so, you know, Jesus doesn't just save lives. He transforms lives. And if we're going to actually walk with Jesus then you better get ready for the idea that you may have met him as an infant, but you're not going to stay an infant forever. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it means there's going to be transformation in your life. And you're going to have to simply grow up. So chapters one through three, all the fun stuff about his goodness and grace. I was talking to somebody this week about the this study we've been doing in Ephesians. And he said, you know, to be honest with you, chapters one through three were way more fun. And I totally agree. They were way more fun to preach. They were way more fun to hear. 
They're way more fun to read and think about. All of this that God has given us, just blessing after blessing, just gifts being poured out upon us. That's wonderful, man. My life is easy when I have to preach stuff like that. If I can't get you excited by preaching about God's grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love, then you need to get rid of me and get somebody else up here because that is exciting stuff. But when we get to chapter four, it's, it's not as though Paul is, is being harsh or even particularly um, tough on us, but he is, it's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, I am not going to stand for so-called Christians who basically will accept all of this inheritance that comes with being a child of God, but are not going to accept the fact that God doesn't just save you from hell and give you heaven, but he actually gives you abundant life to walk in today. And so he begins talking to us about walking in that abundant life. And as we've gotten into the second half of the book, and now we're halfway through the second half of the book, as we as we are in the second half of the book, there's a theme that's emerging, and the theme is grown-up Christianity. And, and basically, it's as if God is saying, listen, it is time for you to put your big boy pants on and take this seriously. And, and if he's going to talk to us about that, he's probably going to stick his finger in our eye now and then. He's probably going to say some things that we need to hear but don't want to hear. And you know what this is like if you're a parent, if you've raised children, you know that there are some times when you have to sit down with your kids and you have to talk about something that's no fun for anybody to talk about and they don't want to hear it, but they need to hear it. And you have to give them the truth. And that's basically what he's doing. And, and as we get um, on in Ephesians, some of what he has to say, I guarantee you, you're not going to like. And I don't know if it's just self-preservation that makes me want to tell you this because I don't want you mad at me. Um, I, I was talking to somebody who was visiting our church last week, first time they were there, and they, they thanked me for preaching the word. And I said, you know, I have no idea what I would say if I didn't preach the word. Like, what are these guys doing that step into the pulpit every week and just make something up? And this is what I was thinking about this week as if somehow my opinion is more valuable than yours or my insight is more valuable and you should give your time to listening to what I have to say. Here's the deal, guys. If you ever come to Grace Fellowship and you don't need a Bible on a Sunday morning, find another church because we're going to preach the word. And sometimes it's going to offend us. Sometimes it's going to make us uncomfortable. And, and as we continue to walk through Ephesians chapter 5 and into Ephesians chapter 6, I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be uncomfortable. And there's going to be some stuff you don't like. And it all sort of begins um, in, in verse 18 where he lays the foundation. We talked about this last week. Hopefully by now you're already in Ephesians. You maybe just had some prophetic sense that we might be there today. And you're in Ephesians chapter 5. And I want us to look again at verse 18 that we looked at last week. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And we talked at great length last week about what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we cooperate with God so that He will fill us, so that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that we can be led by the Holy Spirit, so that we can be convicted by the Holy Spirit, so we can be comforted, transformed by the Holy Spirit? And we went into that in great detail. But basically, chapter 5, verse 18 is a turning point in Ephesians. And basically, he says the rest of this story is going to be about the incredible Spirit-filled life. 
I'm going to talk to you, Paul says, about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how it's going to affect your life. Because we talked about this at length last week. When the Holy Spirit fills you, it means that you're completely surrendered to God. It means that God takes over. And you could be sure of this. If God is going to take over your life, there are going to be some things that are going to change. Amen? It has to. He's going to be driving the ship. And so as we get into this Spirit-filled life, it all begins as he begins to describe this for us, I think, for me in verse 21. Here's what it says. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There it is, the S word. Be subject to one another. Or maybe your translation says, submit to one another. Um, and, and we just hate that word. It's not just some of us that don't like that word. We don't like to be told to submit. None of us do. We didn't like it when we were infants. We didn't like it when we were toddlers. We certainly didn't like it when we were teenagers. And we don't like it as adults. When somebody comes along and says to us, listen, you don't get to be in charge right now. You're not going to run your own life. You will not be the one who makes all of your own decisions. But someone else is going to lead you. Someone else is going to direct you. Someone else is going to steer the ship, so to speak. All of us get uncomfortable with that. And there's a reason we get uncomfortable with it. Because we know each other. We have, we've tried submitting to people and we got hurt. We know that nobody's perfect. So everybody that you know is unsafe to submit to. And, and yet, there it is right there, verse 21. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. I mean, even if he just said submit to God, we'd feel better about that. But he says submit to one another. Submission. The word that we hate. One of the reasons we hate it is because we don't understand it. There's some real misconceptions about the biblical concept of submission. First of all, look at what it says Submit to one another. Guys, I'm going to spend some time here because we have to get this straight or the rest of the passage we will not understand. We have to submit to one another. You know what that means? It includes all of us. Everyone is called to submit. Don't get this idea that he doesn't just say, children, submit to your parents. He doesn't just say, you know, um, dumb people, submit to smart people. You know, poor people, submit to rich people. People with no power, submit to the people with power. That's not what he says. He says, submit to one another. This is a direction that is given to every single person who claims to be a follower of Christ. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to be submissive. Submissiveness is essential to the Christian life. And he says, do it out of fear of Christ or in reverence for Christ. In other words, as we submit to one another, we're actually submitting to Christ. That's what God is calling us to do. And, and submission, by the way, is, I think, one of the clearest marks of spiritual maturity. You show me someone who is spiritually mature, and I will show you someone who is submissive. You can't be one without the other. So it's interesting because I think this topic of submission is maybe the single most essential component of the Christian life. And once you're saved and once you're set free and once you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, this issue of submission might be the single most important key to living in obedience with God. 
It's so essential, and yet it's probably the least preached topic in all the Bible because no one wants to hear it. Nobody wants to be told to submit. So some of that comes from confusion about the concept, and one of the things I want to do today is unpack the concept for you a little bit so that we understand it. It comes from the Greek word, that word be subject to or submit to is a Greek word, hupotasso. And, and that Greek word is a very specific word. And I've put up on the screen for you some of the ways that it's described. It means to arrange under or to subordinate. Now, understand, it doesn't say to be arranged under or to be subordinated. It says to arrange under or to subordinate. It is an act of the person who is submitting. You can't make somebody submit. It's something we have to do on our own. To, to subject oneself to someone or something. So first of all, submitting is something that we must do. Nobody can do it for you, and nobody can make you do it. We've all heard the phrase, beaten into submission. It's a misnomer. There's no such thing. You cannot beat someone into submission. You can, you can force someone to do something, but you can't force them to submit. And the reason you can't force them to submit is because it's something they have to decide to do, and it's an attitude of the heart. Submission is not just that you do what you're told. There are people who do what they're told, but are not submissive, right? And, and if you force someone to do something, they're not submitting to you. In fact, the more that you force people, the less likely they are to submit to you, because the more you're proving to them that you're unsafe to submit to Submission is a personal act. It's an act of the will. It's an attitude of the heart. That word is a Greek military word. Basically, it describes what happens that there are those soldiers in authority, and then there are those soldiers who line up under that authority. It literally means to line up under in ranks. That's the literal meaning of the word. And so, again, it's not that the commander lines you up. It's that you line up behind the commander. It's an act of the will. It's something that you do. Another non-military uh, definition of it is a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, and assuming responsibility. It's voluntary. You have to do it yourself. And the scripture is absolutely clear that all of us need to choose the position of submission. And we have to do it as a way of life. Leaders and followers both have to submit. Kings and servants both have to submit. Adults and children both have to submit. Men and women both have to submit. Young and old both have to submit. You get it? It's for everybody. And let me show you an example of it from Scripture. Go to Matthew chapter 8. You're going to want to leave your finger in Ephesians because we'll be back there as you could guess. But go to Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to find Jesus in a discussion with a Roman soldier. Beginning in, in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8, just uh, read along as I read it. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority 
with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It's probably a story you've heard before. Read it yourself, hopefully, in your study of Scripture. This Roman soldier comes to Jesus. He has a servant who is sick unto death, and he wants the guy to be healed, and he knows that Jesus has power. And so he comes to Jesus and asks him to use that power on behalf of his servant and to heal him. So it's a fairly typical story. We see it happen again and again and again in the gospel. Someone comes and says, hey, my loved one needs to be healed, and Jesus heals them. And Jesus says to him, I'll be more than happy to come and heal your servant. Let me just come to your house. And the guy says, no, I don't want you to come to my house because I'm not worthy for you to enter my home. But if you say the word, I know he'll be healed. And Jesus heals him. What I want to point out to you in this story is this man's rank. He's a soldier, but he's not just any soldier. He's a centurion. Now, a centurion in the Roman army at that time is a commanding officer. He's a man who has 100 men who are direct reports to him, and many of those men have a group of men who are direct reports to them. So he's over a whole bunch of people. And there are 100 men in his squadron who answer directly to him. He is a man who is defined by his authority. Usually to become a centurion, you would have to have been a foot soldier for like 10 or 15 years before you're promoted up in the ranks and you become a centurion. It's all about authority. This man has power. And he says as much. He says, I say to this one, come, and he comes. That one, go, and he goes. They do what I tell them because I have the power. And he describes himself that way. But it's interesting if we go back to verse 9 to watch carefully how he describes himself. Matthew chapter 8, verse 9. For I also am a man under authority. <clears throat> with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. I want you to notice two things about what he said. First of all, the big one, he's under authority. See, the men who follow his lead, they define him in terms of his authority, but he defines himself in terms of the authority he's submitted to. He's under authority. One who commands doesn't just decide what will be done and then tell people to do it, but there's a chain of command above him, right? And ultimately, he answers to the emperor, and that's to whom he, he uh, has to give an account. And so he understands that he is under authority, and he describes himself as one who is under authority and therefore has power. You get it? And the other interesting thing you want to notice in verse 9 is that he says, I also am a man under authority. Hey, Jesus, I've come to you because you have power, and I know that you are one under authority. And I, like you, am under authority. I know what that's like. I have power because I'm under the authority. And, and you say, well, Jesus is God. He's not under anybody's authority. Really? Have you read your Bible? 
Because the Bible says again and again and again that the son submits to the father. And that he does nothing that the father doesn't give him to do. And that he says nothing that the father doesn't tell him to say. He's under the authority of the father, even though he's eternally God. So one thing we need to learn from this is let's not make the mistake of thinking that somehow the one that is under authority is somehow lesser than the one who has the authority. The one who is under authority is necessarily less competent or less valued or less worthy than one than the one who has authority. That's not the case. Jesus is co-equal with the Father eternally. And yet, he is one who is under authority and his power is exercised in the context of submitting to that authority. And it is under that authority that he speaks a word of healing and the, and the centurion's um, servant is healed. All of us are called to be submissive. It's not a question of position. It's not a question of role. It's not a question of gender. It's not a question of age. It's not a question of wealth or, or influence. Every one of us is commanded to be submissive. Now, I have said the same thing like five times. Have we got it? We're all supposed to be submissive. Anybody not onto that? Raise your hand if it's not clear yet. I'll, I'll say it again. Okay, so we get it, right? So we can move on because some of you have to get that foundation laid because the things that we're about to get to, you are going to be really unhappy about. So I just have to lay that foundation because in verse 18, Paul tells us to all live spirit-filled lives. In verse 21, he begins to show us that one of the surest marks of the spirit-filled life is the position of submission. And then uh, he begins to get more specific. If you go back to Ephesians 5, he begins to get more specific in verse 22. Now, before we get to that, let me just real quick. I'm going to put this on. <laughs> just before I read this, because it could be dangerous before I read this verse. Okay, ready? Verse 22 Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. We good? Nobody's got any weapons? Nobody's going to throw anything? Okay, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, this verse has created all kinds of conflict. All kinds of conflict in the church, all kinds of conflict in families, all kinds of conflict in seminaries. People write journal articles back and forth to one another as theologians about this topic. It is not a simplistic topic. It is not a topic that is easy to just figure out at, at face value. It takes some digging. But before we get all upset about who is being told to submit to who and in what context, Let's remember the foundation that has been laid. All of us are called to be submissive. And we have this good, loving God who loves us so much that when he tells us to do something, it's because it's good. It's because it's right. It's because it's what's best for us. So let's not lift verse 22 out of context. In fact, um, let me read it, the whole thing in context. Let's go back to verse 21, and we're going to read uh, the remainder of the chapter and get the whole context. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's verse 21. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. See, this is not a passage simply written by a chauvinist apostle who is trying to keep women down. The passage is written to men and women alike. Be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. And there is specific instructions for wives, specific instructions for husbands. Later, we will see specific instructions for children and specific instructions for parents. Later after that, we will see specific instructions for employees and even slaves and in, uh, specific instructions for employers and masters, those who exercise power and those who are under their authority. And even though the verses directed to the wives cause a lot of stir in our culture today, it's important to note that Paul gives three simple verses to wives on how to be submissive in the family life, and he gives three times that many verses to men about how to be submissive in the family life. So he's not simply singling out women here and going, all right, you know, we read into this so much stuff. Paul, under the Spirit's inspiration, is not laying down a set of rules for you to live by in your household. He is instead laying down a set of principles for you to stay within as you have your household. So he doesn't make a set of rules and give them to us here. He doesn't say, for instance, and, and I'm telling you this because a lot of us, when we read things like the husband is the head of the wife, we read stuff into that that was never intended. We read it as something that it doesn't mean. So Paul is not saying, hey, listen, the husband is the boss of the family and the wife is the follower in the family. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying the, the husband should make the decisions for the family and the wife should do the housework. That's not what he's saying. And by calling the husband the head of the wife, he's not saying, as some have thought, that somehow the male is the thinker of the, among the humans and women are feelers. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying any of the stuff that we in our culture tend to read into this. And next week, we're going to unpack this passage at length. So if, if you're intrigued by this, if you're already starting to get mad, if you're already starting to get curious, whatever the deal is, next week, we're really going to dig in and we're going to look at submission in married life and what that looks like and try to get a biblical view of it. But I want to make, be clear about what it's not. This is not the words of a male chauvinist God as some people have thought. 
God is not a male chauvinist. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but God is not even a male. You understand that? Right? I mean, I know the Bible refers to him as he and refers to him as father and all that kind of stuff, but you understand that those are metaphors, right? God is spirit. The things that define male and female do not apply to God. So don't get this idea that because God has male titles in Scripture, that God is male and not female. God is neither male nor female. God is not in the men's camp against the women. It's really important for us to understand that. And neither is he feminine. God is not female. God is God. He's entirely different. So, so don't think that this is, you know, a male God who is trying to keep women down and these male church leaders who are trying to keep women down. It's nothing of the type. He's talking about being under the full influence of the Holy Spirit. So let's be clear. Submissiveness is a mark of Christian maturity in both men and women. The more you are like Christ, the more submissive you are. Let's look at some examples. Just turn, if you're in Ephesians, just turn two pages to the right. Go to Philippians chapter 2. We've already visited this passage recently. I love this passage. I come back to it again and again. In Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 8, but I want to start in verse 1 just so we understand really what he's saying here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Already, this doesn't sound like submission is something that should separate us from one another, should it? But it should be something that bonds us together. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, he said this before. He said it in Ephesians 5, where he said, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. To consider one another as more important than yourself is to willingly line up under. It is to not insist upon being above, right? Verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Why would he tell us that? Oh, because we do it all the time. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus we're talking about. The one who has always been God. The one who is seated on the throne that all of creation bows down to. And he is submissive. He willingly emptied himself. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to or held on to. Now, this doesn't mean that he became less than God when he became a human. It means that he laid down his right of being recognized as God and honored as God and instead submitted to the very people that he had created. He was submitting to the Father when he came to earth, but he also lived a life of submission to people. He submitted to his parents. 
He submitted to the religious leaders who were involved in his education and his upbringing. He submitted to the, to the godless Roman government and the soldiers and the authorities that were there. He submitted to the tax collectors that were gouging the people. He submitted consistently. Now, see, a lot of us struggle because we don't like this idea of submission. And yet, Jesus was submissive all the time. In, in John chapter 6, verse 38, he says basically this. He says, I have come to do the will of my Father. That's why I came. That's why I'm here, he said. That's the whole point of this missions trip from heaven to earth. I've come to do the will of my Father. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Let's look at this together. The very end of Matthew, which is the first book of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 26. And let's look at verse 39. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember it? He knows that he's about to go to the cross. He knows that he's going to face the wrath of God. And the pressure and the anxiety, not anxiety, but the pressure that he's under is so intense that the capillaries in his body are bursting and his sweat is mixing with blood and he's sweating great drops of blood. That's a pretty intense situation. All because he knows he's about to face the wrath of God, which he doesn't deserve. And here in Matthew chapter 26, if we look at verse 39, listen to what it says. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he repeated that same prayer two more times. And having been confirmed by the Father that this was his will and there was no way for this cup to pass, he got up and submitted to the authority of the people who were going to hang him on a cross. You say, listen, I am perfectly willing to submit to God. I mean, Jesus submits to the Father. Okay, I get that. There's a perfect trust relationship there. You know that God is good. You know that God is all-powerful. You know that God loves you, that God's not going to hurt you. But... But to submit to people, that's my challenge. We need to understand this. Go to John chapter 19, because Jesus serves as our example here. John chapter 19, pick it up in verse 10. John 19, 10, Jesus is on trial before Pilate, who is a Roman governor. And in John 19, 10, listen to what Pilate says to him. So Pilate said to him, do you, not, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Imagine what that's like for Jesus to hear. For someone to say, listen, I have authority over you. He must be thinking, dude, I wove you together in your mother's womb. You're not going to breathe your next breath if I don't give it to you. But listen to what he says. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He recognizes that he has authority over him. And he recognizes where that authority came from. You go, no, 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 Pilate's a bad guy. He didn't get his authority from God. Well, guess what? The scripture says he did. Jesus says he did. And in fact, if you, if you were to continue reading in, in Romans chapter 13... It gives us this whole treatment of how we should submit to the 
um, governmental authorities. And he's writing to the Roman Christians who are being persecuted. And he says, all of this authority that is in play on earth has come from God and his authority. God does not allow anyone to become a leader that he hasn't allowed or caused to become a leader. And so that all authority is God-given. All legitimate authority in the family, in society, in the military, in the church, in the courts, wherever it is, is God-given. Now, not everyone who has been given authority by God uses it for God's glory, amen? Not everyone who has authority uses it wisely. Not everyone who has authority uses it for the benefit of those who are under their authority. We all know that. That's why submission makes us nervous, right? So why does God tell us to submit? Because apart from authority and submission, there is no way to live in civilized human culture. It can't be done. Some of you are teachers. You know what this is like. Do you, do you suppose it's important that the students submit to the teacher in the classroom? <laughs> I mean, you may be teaching first graders and it's really hard to get them to submit, but you kind of get, teach them and train them and get it figured out. But if you're teaching junior hires or high schoolers, they're at the age where they know you can't make them, right? If they don't submit willingly, no learning will happen today in the classroom, right? Those kids could control the whole room. They could take over. It just takes one or two of them, right? Parent, teachers, is that true? That's all it takes. We have to have submission in order to have organized society. Um, when we had the Gulf War, General Schwarzkopf is this great decorated uh, general who's in charge of the entire war. He'd spent his whole life studying warfare and fighting in wars so that he would know how to run a war. And he's given the authority over the entire war in the Middle East. And guess what? He had to answer to George Bush, who had never been a general of anything. Right? Because he's a commander in chief. Why would you do that? Because without authority and submission, it is impossible to have a civilized society. God created it that way. He's not trying to hold us down. It's simply a part of his system. And so he's given authority to even governments. And we talked about this, but, and I'll just touch on it briefly, but, you know, there's a lot of discussion today in our culture, a lot of discussion about the misuse of authority, especially by the government and members of the government. There's a lot of discussion about misuse of police authority, people being abused by police officers, right? There's a lot of discussion about bad judges and, and people being uh, railroaded by a judicial system that is messed up. There's a lot of talk about bad politicians, amen, right? There's a lot of talk about that these days. And particularly, think about the, the whole issue. Let me be exceedingly clear here. Every single, let's use police as an example. Every policeman who misuses his authority to abuse someone is doing a deplorable act, period, without exception. So if you have police who are, who are shooting innocent people that they shouldn't be shooting, if you have police that are extorting money from people, if you have police that are racially profiling and trying to, trying to um, you know, in, insist on... Uh, hurting those who are of a different race, 
all of that is deplorable, it's despicable, and they should all be held accountable, and we should do what we can to change a system so that that is not happening, okay? I want to be as clear as I can be about this. That being said, the vast, vast, vast majority of people of all races who end up getting hurt by police are hurt because they are refusing to submit to the legitimate authority of the police. If we would all choose to submit, there would be a whole lot less difficulty. Now, here's the problem. There are those bad policemen. There are those bad judges. There are those bad parents. There are those bad pastors. There are those bad you know, governors, right? And so we are in danger when we submit. What's interesting is that God knows that and still doesn't tell us, choose when you will submit and when you won't. He tells us to consistently be submissive. That's his calling upon our lives. And if we're going to walk with him, we have to understand, James chapter 4, verse 7 commands us, submit therefore to God. And God is telling us in Ephesians 5, submit to one another. And he's telling us in Romans 13, submit to every human authority that has been placed over you. Man, I hate this. Submission is hard. And we don't like it. We have to remember it's out of reverence for Christ. Here's the bottom line. God's word is absolutely clear in its command for all of us to choose to live in submission to legitimate authority that is placed in our lives. And by extension, to live in submission to Christ. If you show me a submissive Christian, I will show you a mature Christian. You show me a, a, a submissive Christian, I'll show you a world-changing Christian. Because part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit is to live in submission. When I submit to those whom God has called me to submit, I'm actually submitting to who? God. I know the people in your life are not safe. None of us are safe. God's safe. He calls us to submit to him. So it comes down to this. Are you willing to lay down your rights and live for the glory of God? We sang that song earlier about how we are completely his. We belong to him. The scripture says, you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. And we say, but I really like to be in charge. And God says, I'll let you choose. I can't make you submit. I could kill you. I can make you suffer, but I can't make you submit. Do you want to live a submissive life for the glory of God and experience the fruit of the Spirit-filled life? Or do you want to be in charge and take care of yourself? This is a command we've all been given. Be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Some of us, frankly, need an attitude adjustment on this issue. Some of us have to really grapple with the fact that the hurt that we've faced, the fear that uh, is present in our lives, the the unhealthy condition of our relationships or whatever has put us in a position where we, by our own choice, are not submissive people. 
God calls us to be submissive people. And some of us, when we hear the word submission, we just put up the shield and we go, not listening. Next week, we're going to get into this discussion of what this looks like in married life. After that, we'll talk about what it looks like in parenting and, and that family atmosphere. We're going to talk about what it looks like in the workplace. But if we don't get past this bottom line where we say, I'm willing to be submissive and I understand that's God's will for my life, we're going to miss out on all that he has for us. If it's all about you and your rights, then it's not all about God and his glory, is it? May God give us the grace and the courage to live submissive lives.